How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can be said than to you he hath said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. Amen. What more could possibly be said about John 3.16? For God so loved the... That he gave his only... And we know how the rest goes. Welcome to the 8 o'clock service. So common a verse that many of us are immune to its power, aren't we? Some of you are allergic. John 3.16... It appears at sporting events and on souvenirs, styrofoam cups, and campaign paraphernalia. The irony of this verse is the frequency with which it is co-opted to reinforce a team mentality, whether among NFL fans, Christian denominations, or political interest groups that seek to create insiders and outsiders, us and them. This verse is deployed all too often as a harbinger of personal faith for personal gain. What can God do for me? For God so loved Zach that he sent his only son. That is true. And yet on the contrary, the broader message that this morning's scriptures present is very simple. And it is this, that God's love and blessings are for the whole world. The whole world without exception, everybody. In our reading from Genesis, Abram becomes a man on the move, a refugee on pilgrimage for God, when God tells him to go from his country and kindred to a land that God will show him. Sight unseen, Abram takes his nephew Lot and goes, trusting in the strength and faithfulness of God alone journeying beyond the comfort and familiarity of house and home to a destination yet unknown, a people yet unborn. Through Abram's faith, God promises that he will become a blessing, not for his people only, but for all the families of the earth. Blessed to be a blessing, he will later receive a new name, Abraham, as he steps into the new life to which God is calling him. The theme of new life continues in John's gospel as we hear the story of Nicodemus, a devout Jewish teacher and Pharisee who comes to Jesus under the cover of night. Night. His story reminds me of a friend from seminary who grew up a PK, a priest kid, and enjoyed an extended season of life away from the church as an atheist, before being drawn back to faith and eventually becoming a priest herself. She went back to church at first because she missed the hymns. Being highly intellectual, Ivy League educated, and embarrassed by her rediscovered interest in religion, she for years would sneak off to church on Sunday mornings while her husband slept in. And then when she got back home, she would tell him, that she went out for bagels. Sneaking off to church 
More consequentially, John the Revelator, in the book of Revelation, at the end of the Bible, warns believers in the earliest centuries of the church to beware of a group called the Nicolaitans, Christians in name, who were willing to offer a little worship here and there to pagan and Roman gods in order to blend in, to go unnoticed. Likewise, at the time of the Continental Reformation in the 16th century, John Calvin referred to those who supported the Reformation but were reluctantly to, re- reluctant to be publicly identified. He called those people Nicodemites, after Nicodemus himself. More recently, it has been suggested in the midst of the rise of Nazi Germany in the early 20th century that the German Christians took up the mantle of Nicodemus as they sought to accommodate Christianity, accommodate the gospel to the racism and anti-Semitism of Nazi ideology, Christians under the cover of night. To be sure, the historic interpretation offers important and cautionary anecdotes illustrating the pitfalls of a religiosity too closely aligned with empire. In a tradition, ours, which associates light with good and darkness with bad, Nicodemus has been thoroughly chastised for coming to Jesus at night. Nevertheless, and true to form, our friend and preacher Barbara Brown Taylor challenges this dichotomy as she invites us to reconsider Nicodemus and the role that darkness might play. Taylor suggests that perhaps Nicodemus came by night because he knew there was not a better time to talk about things that really matter. After all, she asks, how often have you asked something by candlelight that you never would have asked under the light of a fluorescent bulb? Sometimes, she writes, darkness is the perfect blanket for conversations you just can't have in the broad light of day. Contrary to the full solar fate embraced by much of the church, new life starts in the dark. Whether it is a seed in the ground, a baby in the womb, or Jesus in the tomb, it starts in the dark. There is grace at night. Even evidence from evolutionary biology suggests that it was likely during the long nights of winter that prayer first emerged as those early humans would awaken in the middle of the night and chatter with God. A favorite prayer of mine comes from the Anglican Church of New Zealand. Lord, it is night. What has been done has been done. What has not been done has not been done. Let it be. Grace, echoing the psalmist who writes that it is but lost labor that we haste to rise up early and so late take rest 
and eat the bread of anxiety. For the beloved of God are given gifts even while they sleep. Early Christian mystics had a beautiful way of describing God's presence as a dazzling darkness. A dazzling darkness. The notion that it is when we, like Nicodemus, surrender to our inability to have all the answers, it is when we hit the limits of human knowledge that God is most fully known. In the same way, modern poet Wendell Berry writes that to know the dark, go dark. Go without sight and find that the dark, too, blossoms and sings. It is often in our own seasons of darkness and of night that we experience God most present those seasons when we cry with the psalmist, I lift my eyes to the hills from where is my help to come? And finally, acknowledging our inability to be God for ourselves, declare with the psalmist all the same, my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. It is in these seasons that we recognize our dependence on God's grace and provision at work in us and through us, as well as in our communities, neighbors, and friends. For God so loved the world that God gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. This is a description of our Maker's amazing grace. Love freely given, freely received, unearned, unmerited, undeserved. Our experience of night teaches us that every blessing, every gift, everything we have, every breath we take, our very life, my friends, comes from God. This acknowledgement is the beginning of faith. This kind of surrender is what we enact sacramentally when we are born again by water and spirit at baptism. And it is through this surrender, surrender of control, of certainty, of our false sense of self-sufficiency, it is through surrender that we are invited to be born anew again and again and again. Today's gospel concludes with John three seventeen, For God sent the Son into the world not to condemn the world, but that through him, the world might be saved. Which begs the perennial question, saved from what? Well, the stock answer is that we are saved from sin in this life and death in the life to come. Indeed, we hear much in this season of Lent about sin, which is brokenness of relationship and separation from God and neighbor. But if you think about it, Sin is at its most fundamental level an illusion. If we affirm with the saints in every age that nothing can separate us from the loving presence of God, who gives breath to our lungs and sustains the very life we live, then sin is a lie. It is the lie that causes us to believe and act from a place that would tell us otherwise. 
for we live and move and have our being in God. Thus, to say that we are separated from God is a lie. We cannot live without God. And so to defeat sin is to live in truth. Ultimately, God calls us to be born again ever more fully into the truth of who we really are already. As we all grow into the full stature of Christ individually and collectively. The great contemplative Thomas Merton put it this way. He said that in our communion with God, we discover not a new unity, but we discover a very old unity. My dear siblings, he writes, we are already one. We are already one. But we imagine we are not. And what we have to recover is that original unity. What we have to be is what we already are. My friends, we are one. One in Christ, one in our humanity. Despite all the messages we get that emphasize our brokenness, our fragmentation, all the ways we are fractured, and yes, we are, but fundamentally, that is an illusion in God. That is a lie, because we are already one. God blessed Abram so that Abram would, to, would go into the, all the world and be a blessing, to speak truth, to live into the truth that we are united by our common humanity. God has made of one blood all the peoples of the earth. My friends, can we live into that message can we be born again into that hope by water and spirit? This is our calling in Christ Jesus. My friends, where is the spirit of God calling you to rise up like Abram and go? Do it. Be that love, that blessing for the world. Speak that truth. Where are you being led into deeper truth? Maybe outside of your home and kindred. And family, maybe God is calling you outside of your comfort zone this morning to take a risk, to go for it, and to know that God is with you. From where is my help to come? My help comes from God, the maker of heaven and earth. My friends, may we be blessed to be a blessing this morning to the glory of God most high. Amen.